McKay Coppin, staff writer for The Atlantic, writes a front-page, deep-dive feature on The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He posits that for more than 200 years, the Church has tried to assimilate into America, only to find the country in an identity crisis. Coppins takes a look at what will the third century look like for the faith. McKay joins us for a special edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Well, we are very excited today to have uh, McKay Coppins with us here on this special edition of Therefore What. Uh, McKay is a staff writer for The Atlantic, a longtime writer and analyst and uh, one of the great thinkers in the country. Uh, McKay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you're, uh, this is a, an epic piece. This is over 9,000 words. This is, uh, this is not a, uh, for the faint of heart, this is a deep dive uh, into, <laughs> into a fascinating topic. And uh, I want to start with the, the title that you chose for the piece in The Atlantic, uh, focusing on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, called The Most American Religion. Tell me about it. Yeah, you know, the, the kind of origin of this piece was uh, in a conversation that I had with our editor-in-chief at The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, who you know, has always been fascinated by the faith and uh, had kind of been saying ever since I joined The Atlantic uh, a number of years ago that he wanted me to write about it at some point for the magazine. And he said, you know, that it feels like there are all these elements of Mormonism, of, of the Latter-day Saint kind of ethos that are quintessentially American. And kind of the conceit of the piece was that a lot of those things that the Latter-day Saints have modeled you know, communitarianism, uh, shared sacrifice, things like, uh, you know, taking care of your neighbor and, you know, all of that, basically, that whole ethos is sort of starting to become endangered in America right now. And so he wanted to know, where does this come from? Why are Latter-day Saints kind of clinging to it? And is there, are there kind of lessons in what he calls the Mormon story, what we call the Mormon story, that could be interesting uh, to Americans right now. And so that was kind of the jumping off point from the piece. Other writers and, um, you know, scholars, most notably Harold Bloom uh, several decades ago, have made the point that, that that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is an authentically American institution. Uh, and, and what I wanted to look at was kind of where that comes from. And, and, uh, and I kind of weave in my own personal experiences with the faith throughout to try to give it texture and, and show what it's like to be a member of this church and, and what, uh, what we learn and what we kind of demonstrate uh, yeah. in our lives and, and how that kind of has a ripple effect throughout the country. Yeah, and I want to come back to because I'm sure there were some challenges to doing that <clears throat> in sharing your own story as part of that. So I'm going to I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, but I want to drill down just a little bit on this uh, this idea of the American religion you included, as as others have talked about as well, that uh, that the the faith has worked so hard to assimilate uh, into America and into the country, and now it's sort of assimilated into a country that's in the middle of an identity crisis. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the what I think is interesting is that from the very beginning of the faith, you know, almost as soon as Joseph Smith started to attract converts, Mormons were derided as sort of, uh, you know, un-American, mm-hmm. right? Um, they, they were seen as, uh, for various reasons, a threat to democracy, a threat to the American experiment. But at the same time, 
Joseph Smith and subsequent church leaders and Latter-day Saints always believed that the faith's success was kind of tangled up or connected with the success of the American experiment, right? Um, And in a lot of ways, the the church did try to kind of model the highest ideals of the country, and the, the effort was to kind of be accepted as part of the fabric of America, and that was always a struggle, right? Certainly in the early years when Latter-day Saints were being chased from state to state and, uh, you know, eventually driven out of the country and had to be forced to kind of settle in the desert. Uh, that, that was especially true. But even in subsequent, you know, decades and in various times in American life, uh, Mormons were still sort of seen as kind of peculiar outsiders, right? And so as we uh, tried to assimilate as a people, I do think we kind of, in some ways deliberately and in some ways kind of unconsciously, came to model a lot of these elements of Americanism. And what's kind of ironic is that I think Latter-day Saints finally sort of succeeded just as the country was starting to question whether those things were still valuable. So I mentioned community, that's one of them. But, you know, it's kind of this whole Norman Rockwellian ideal, service, family, patriotism, caring for uh, immigrants and refugees, right. um, all these things that are now kind of fundamental to the Latter-day Saint ethos used to be fundamental to the American ethos. But now, you know, it feels like we're at a point in our country where all these things are up for debate, right? All these things are are being reexamined. And so Latter-day Saints find themselves in this strange situation where we've assimilated to a country that may no longer exist. <laughs> right. Um, and, and what, you know, we have to figure out what the third century of our faith will look like if, if that continues to be the case, if we're still going to be these outsiders. Yeah, fascinating. And uh, and interesting, too, in that uh, uh, as the most American religion, as, as you put in the piece, uh, is also increasingly international in terms of scope. Yep. Uh, and and how do you how do you balance that component to it that while founded here you know finding success and and uh, a foundation here now with more than half of the members of the church uh, living outside of the United States what did you learn in terms of that balance in terms of looking at it uh, overall yeah well so that that was one of the early decisions I had to make was was I going to focus on the global church or uh, the church as it started in America. And I, I ended up focusing more on America, but I do think that that global component is actually really important to the idea that I try to explore, which is that it may be, if it if it ends up being the case that America has sort of moved on from the ideals that uh, Latter-day Saints have uh, come to embody, that, uh, that there's less of a concern, less emphasis on trying to assimilate into American mainstream culture mm. and more of a focus on the international uh, scope, right? That right. as the church expands abroad, you know, the, it becomes more and more of a global church. I do think that there's some tension there, and there always has been, and, you know, various American, American-based faiths as they uh, send missionaries out into the world will often bring with them kind of elements of their native country in addition to their faith that right. they're exporting and converting yeah. people to. Um, and so, you know, that that certainly has happened and, and probably will continue to happen. But I do think that in general, we, uh, we're probably looking at a situation where the church focuses less and less on its Americanness and and tries to kind of continue to reinvent itself as a, a global institution with, you know, members and uh, and 
all over the world, temples in dozens of countries, you know, that, that I think may end up being the, the, the central project of, of the faith third century. I want to get to some of the uh, the challenges uh, of this for you. Of course, you did have access, even in during a pandemic, you were able to interview uh, President Russell M. Nelson, uh, President and Prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, so I want you to talk about that a little bit. And in the context of that, uh would also love to, to have you kind of get into the challenge in terms of members and journalists. Uh, credibility is both. You you entered from a very unique space, being a member of the church, writing for the Atlantic, right. this significant piece. Talk about the balances there in terms of your in- integrity and focus on the faith and uh, your integrity as a, as a journalist and having that credibility. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, we knew from the beginning that this would be kind of a, a strange situation, a challenge that I'd have to address in working on this piece, right? Like, uh, (laughs) it is not the case that there are very many, um, you know, devout Latter-day Saints writing about the church and the national media. And of course, my 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 typical area of coverage is, is national politics, right? right? So I'm not, you know, a religion beat writer uh, by any by any stretch. So, you know, I, I think that what we decided from the very beginning was to just be very transparent about that, mm-hmm. right? That, like, it, it wouldn't make sense for me to try to write a long, in-depth treatment of the Church without kind of making my own experience as part of the story, because, you know, at the very least, I would have had to disclose somewhere that I was a member of the Church, right. and that would have kind of sounded alarm bells for a lot of readers, wondering if I could really be objective. And I think there's also, you know, in the recent past, been a tendency with some Latter-day Saint writers to, um, when they're writing about the church, feel like they have to overcompensate and kind of swing the pendulum the other way right. and go out of their way to, to, you know, take all these different shots at the church to prove that they're independent and objective. And I didn't really want to do either of those. I didn't want to. I didn't want the piece to feel like it was. Uh, evangelical in any any sense, like Mm -hmm. I was trying to, you know, convert people. I also didn't want it to feel like it was unduly harsh, uh, just for the sake of proving my, you know, uh, journalistic bona fides. So I I ended up just being very kind of personal and vulnerable in the piece. I write about my experiences growing up in the church in Massachusetts. I write about my mission experience in Texas. Um, I write about even, you know, developing my own testimony of the faith and, and my, the, the Brooklyn uh, branch that I uh, moved to after getting married and, and kind of tried to write about all of that in a very, I, I will say up front that it was kind of uncomfortable um, for me because I, I am not, you know, generally a personal essayist. I don't spend most of my time writing about myself. And right. so this was a kind of different position for me to be in. And, and my editors actually pushed me to do more of it because they thought it was uh, important for the piece. But you asked about the interview with President Nelson. Um, I, I will say that I've been working for a long time on setting up this interview. And as you know, presidents of the church, you know, they, they each president of the church has kind of a different approach and a different style. And, you know, at least in recent years, presidents of the church don't spend a ton of time uh, with long sit-down interviews with journalists. They <laughs> they have other things to do. Um, <laughs> right, right. So it, it, was, it was kind of a feat to even pull off the interview. And I arranged it all before the pandemic started. Mm. And then once the pandemic started, it, it kind of created a whole new set of challenges, right? Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, President Nelson was 95 years old. He's now 96. You know, we did, we certainly I didn't want to do anything that would endanger his health. 
But to his credit and to the credit of the kind of church apparatus that worked on this, they felt like it was important to honor their commitment to, to go through with the interview. President Nelson felt that way. And, and so I did. I went out in, uh, early, in, in the early spring um, and flew out to Salt Lake and, and interviewed him. You know, they did have um, various precautions to make sure that it was uh, safe and, and that everybody was healthy. And, but it was it was a strange experience, I will say, interviewing President Nelson in Temple Square, which was shut down in a church administration building that was otherwise vacant, <laughs> um, you know, sitting in a conference room very far apart from each other so that uh, we were well, well distanced. Uh, the, the, there were a lot of kind of strange and memorable experiences. But uh, he ended up giving me uh, an, an hour of his time, which uh, was very generous of him. And uh, we, we covered a lot, and you'll, you'll read about it in the piece. But, you know, we covered everything from some of the tensions within the faith over, you know, gender and LGBT issues to uh, the faith's emphasis on uh, charitable giving and community, how the church was responding to uh, the, the pandemic, and some interesting personal insights. I got into President Nelson where he, he actually, toward the end of the interview, started to kind of talk about how he thought he would be judged mm. when the time came, how God would judge him, which was obviously kind of a really uh, a notable uh, moment, and, and I appreciated his, his kind of candor there. Yeah. You can read about that in the piece. Yeah. Anything else surprise you in that, uh, in that interaction with President Nelson? You know, I I think a lot of people say this, so it may even sound trite to say, but it, it is remarkable how kind of sharp and energetic he is, given his age. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, <laughs> nearing a hundred years old, right? I don't. I mean, most of the people that you know who are that old are not, you know, not sitting in conference rooms for long interviews with journalists, and you know, he 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 was very good at you know answering. Uh, all the questions I threw at him, some of them were, you know, I didn't, I didn't pull any punches. I asked some tough questions. He also, uh, I, I thought it was interesting just because I hadn't spent, you know, a lot of time with President Nelson before. But he, he's kind of prone to these enthusiastic tangents about, um, about the human body. He's obviously, you know, he has a medical background. He's a pioneering heart yeah. surgeon, so he'll kind of go off on, on these. Uh, these kind of tangents about the servo-regulatory mechanisms in the body and how the heart works, and and most of it's over my head. But uh, <laughs> you can you can tell that he's he's very you know very sharp, very with it, and his mind is constantly working. And yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, um, as a yeah. as a guy who has uh, chased that ninety six year old <laughs> all around the planet yeah. on these uh, global ministry tours, I, I can tell you that is. Uh, his mind and his body still go way faster than the rest of us. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It was an unfortunate realization that he's more energetic and probably healthier than I am <laughs> yeah. when he's, you know, in his nineties and I'm, I'm in my thirties. <laughs> Uh, you, you shared one other really fascinating uh, insight. Uh, it was in your uh, interaction with uh, Elder M. Russell Ballard, uh, the uh, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church, and uh, it had to do with refugees. Can you just give our, our readers, I just want to hear that from your uh, perspective. Yeah, so he, it was interesting because one of the things I wanted to look into was why American Latter-day Saints Although, you know, generally politically conservative and aligned with the Republican Party seems to break with some in their party and some of the broader religious right on issues like immigration and refugees. 
And so I, I, I talked to, uh, to Eleanor Ballard about this, and he, you know, he obviously um, is a descendant of Hiram Smith, mm-hmm. um, who, was, who was killed and, uh, along with Joseph Smith was martyred. And, uh, you know, at first I, I thought it was interesting because when he talks about the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith, it's not like a historical event for him. It, it feels like almost a raw family tragedy, mm-hmm. you know? Like he, he really feels the emotion of it and yeah. feels the emotion of the, the early persecution of the Latter-day Saints. And he, he said, you know, we really were refugees. And he kind of made the point that a lot of the, uh, the Latter-day Saint attitudes toward refugees and immigrants uh, today go back to our history, are rooted in that history. Because, we, you know, we ob- anyone in the Church knows that you grow up hearing the stories about Missouri and, you know, Martin Van Buren refusing to, to help and, the, you know, the saints being cast out of uh, various places and eventually driven into uh, the unsettled territory beyond America's borders. You, you hear all these stories and, and they're kind of woven into the Latter-day Saint DNA. And so when you, for example, hear about a proposal from somebody who's running for office to ban immigration from Muslims, you know, there, there's a visceral response to that, and there's an aversion to that. And uh, Elder Ballard kind of uh, made the point that, uh, you know, we, we we as a people are a refugee people, and we care about refugees. And he told an interesting story to me, which was he actually, uh, a couple years ago, toured a refugee camp in Greece and was there when a, a Syrian family um, was kind of flung from a dinghy into uh, the, the ocean. And uh, they kind of washed up on shore and, you know, obviously they're wet and cold and and the volunteers at this refugee camp were were attending to them. And he met their their son, a little nine year old boy named Amir. And and the boy had just been given a little uh, packet of Oreo cookies. Uh, Obviously, they were hungry. Uh, They gave him these Oreo cookies. And when Amir uh, met Elder Ballard, he immediately offered one of the cookies to Elder Ballard, the first one in the in the package. And uh, Elder Ballard said that was a really moving experience to him. And he actually kept the cookie and brought it back to Salt Lake. And it sits in a in a plastic cube on his desk in his office to remind him uh, of the experience of these refugees, the people people running for their lives all over the world is how he put it to me and, and the importance to continue to help them and to, to reach out to them. Uh, as you went through this process, I want to ask you kind of a two part question here. Uh, and that is, uh, even though you are a member of the church, a longtime member of the church, uh, what did you learn about the church uh, and the faith uh, going through this process kind of through a journalistic lens? Yeah. You know, I, I, one thing that I learned a lot from the reporting and or something that stood out to me, and I kind of make this point at the end, is that you know at this time of division in in America and and all over the world, frankly, there's a risk of a lot of the kind of culture war dynamics and divisions creeping into the church, right? Mm-hmm. And you see you see it on social media, and you see it in in our politics sometimes. And I feel like you know sometimes I, I would talk to members, and it didn't matter where they were on the ideological spectrum, political spectrum, even kind of spectrum of, of orthodoxy, that I, I heard from a lot of them, you know, a sense of kind of um, anxiety about where their faith was, where the church was, what, what it might look like. And the, the point that I try to make at the end of the piece is that, you know, I actually think that 
you know, this is a faith, a church that's been through a lot. It's 200, you know, 200 years old. We, we've survived a lot. And I think that we're at our best as a people, as a faith, as a church, um, when we're confident about who we are, right? Mm. There, there can be this, when we, I, we talked earlier about the assimilation, right? right? The desire to be seen as part of the mainstream. Um, I, I actually think that the well, one thing I learned was that 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 feeling is pretty prominent uh, throughout the faith. I felt it growing up. I think a lot of people feel a desire for external validation. But I think that the the more we kind of focus on just doing what we're supposed to, on helping others, on on embracing the distinctiveness of our faith, and the less we focus on on kind of seeking uh, external validation. I think the better off we'll be, the happier we'll be, and the, the kind of stronger we'll be as a faith tradition. And that that was kind of one of the, the points that was driven home for me throughout this process. Yeah, okay. So leaving leaving your journalistic hat on, of course, this, uh, this great project, this is an extraordinary read in The Atlantic. Really, the genesis of it was this bicentennial year of the uh, first vision, the, really the origins of the, of the church and the faith. And uh, so now 200 years uh, with that in the rearview mirror, with your journalistic hat on, as you project forward into that next hundred years uh, in a church uh, and leaders that are becoming increasingly internationally focused, uh, what do you see on the horizon? Did you get a glimpse of anything that, again, from a journalistic standpoint, uh, what what will journalists be watching for over the next uh, little while? Yeah, well, you know, obviously we're at a moment, uh, certainly in America and much of the Western world, where religion uh, religiosity is declining. The current generation, the rising generation, is much less religious than previous generations. Uh, church going is declining, and so I think that the church is going to be focused a lot on retaining its members and making sure that you know the millennial generation and the generation that follows it are kept in the faith and are able to relate to the faith and uh, you know remain kind of uh, strong members, because that, that really is the, the, church, the church is its people, right? The, the, the future of the church is going to depend on, on its members remaining uh, faithful. And so far, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has actually been much more successful than most other faith traditions in America in retaining its members. Part of that is because it's convert, it, it continues to convert hundreds of thousands of people every year, and part of it is because uh, its members are slightly less likely to uh, walk away from the faith than a lot of other faiths. But the, I do think a lot of the focus is going to be on how do we keep people strong in the Church? How do we uh, make sure that this is relatable to them, that it's uh, that it's something that they feel is important and vital to their identity? And uh, I think that that'll probably be uh, both here in America and throughout the world, uh, a big focus of the church. Therefore, what? We've come to that point in the uh, the program. Uh, again, I uh, encourage everyone to to give this a read in The Atlantic. Uh, just uh, an extraordinary piece by McKay Coppins. And uh, McKay, the program is called Therefore What? For a Reason. And it's the therefore what moment. So I get to ask the therefore what question. <laughs> uh, and that is just very simple. Uh, and that is, uh, as people have listened to uh, this conversation today, as they read your piece in the Atlantic, uh, what is the therefore what that you hope people will take away? What do you hope they will think differently? What do you hope they will do differently uh, as a result of, uh, I described your work as a big bite and a long chew. This is uh, this was a lot of hard work and heavy lifting <laughs> 
and uh, really turned out well. So uh, what's your, your therefore what takeaway? Yeah, I mean, you know, we started this conversation talking about the the faith as kind of an authentically American or quintessentially American tradition. And and I think that what I hope is that readers come away not just, and especially, you know, whether you're a member of the church or not, um, this is written for, you know, everybody, but I hope that we come away thinking about taking lessons not just for Mormonism, but for America, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think we're entering a period of, you know, we're in a period of great division. We're in a period of great, you know, tumult in public life. And I do think that there are elements of the American experiment, things that were foundational to the American experiment, things like community, uh, like faith, like, uh, you know, taking care of each other, democracy. These ideals are really important. And I hope that if there's anything that people can glean from the Latter-day Saint story, it's that those ideals can still be preserved and that they are being preserved in various uh, corners of the country. And, uh, and maybe maybe we can kind of discover a, a renewed interest in them uh, as we we uh, we are in this period of tra- transition in American life. All right. Fantastic. McKay Coppin, staff writer for The Atlantic, uh, great writer, great thinker. Uh, thanks for joining us on There For What today. And thanks for having me. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on uh, Deseret.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?